We are parents, we are doctors, we are first responders, teachers, and concerned citizens who have found ourselves at a crossroads. We see our freedoms being stripped away and we can no longer stay silent. We are millions strong, united in a thundering voice and imperative mission that cannot and will not be ignored. We are standing up for the basic human right to raise our own children, earn a living, and make our own medical decisions without the tyrannical overreach that has been forced upon us here in California, across the country, and around the world. We are here to amplify the voices, moving the needle, bringing forth truth, and provide education and resources with tangible tools and expert insights. We are The Unity Project, and this is our podcast. I am so excited to be joined today on location in Santa Clarita, California at KHTS radio station by Carl Goldman. Carl is one of the most um, incredible individuals that I've met in this fight. He has probably the most unique story that I have heard in this fight. And um, Carl, why don't we just start out by talking a little bit about what brought you to the point that you're in right now? Okay, and, and for those who are watching at the moment, I'm in. I'm, I'm at a point where I'm paralyzed from the knee down. I walk in a walker. I'm uh, still paralyzed on my hands, so I type with one finger. I've uh, now graduated from being able to not peel a banana to now I can peel a banana. But the simple this, things in life, right? Yeah. <laughs> but the the uh, button on my shirt, I can't button yet. So my wife had to do that this morning. My story is, is unique. Uh, I was unfortunately uh, pushed by my doctor to take the shingles vaccine, the new one, the one that was approved by the FDA in uh, 2017 that's put out by Merck called Shing- Shingrix, which is now the protocol for, for shingles vaccine. Mm-hmm. So once you hear this story, if your doctor tells you to uh, take the shingles vaccine, you want to do a little research right. on the web. And I know they're pushing it, right? I mean, I was just in um, Encinitas, California, and happened to go into a CVS, and there were signs all over um, promoting coming in and getting the Shingrix vaccine. Right. Yes. And and what wasn't true in 2019 was that they had not released yet the dangers Mm -hmm. of the Shingrix vaccine. But since then, and, and you're welcome to look at this, on at the end of March in 2021, so a little over a year ago, the FDA finally put a warning on Shingrix that it can cause neuropathy or Guillain-Barre syndrome, similar to what I have. Mm-hmm. There are tens of thousands like me. And for those uh, also who want to do a little research, the Shingrix vaccine is very similar in technology to the COVID vaccine. It's an mRNA uh, I've met with a number of COVID uh, victims, people who have been injured, and their stories are very, very similar to mine. So the the uh, the the residue of the vaccine and the the fact that it's totally destroyed the body right. is very, very similar patterns. Right, and I think what's really interesting about your story and what what I think was very poignant to me is that you know as we explore what's happening in this country as it relates to COVID nineteen and the vaccine mandates, um, and now looking at the uh, numbers of vaccine injured that are coming to light, and then hearing your story about another mRNA vaccine and the the common vaccine injuries that we're starting to see, it's fascinating, and so. Clearly, you know, the, the common denominator here is the mRNA vaccine technology um, and what's happening in these in these vaccines. So, but what what I thought was also incredibly unique was the fact that you were patient zero, correct? Right. I was for, ground zero for COVID. For COVID-19. That's correct. So let's talk a little bit about that. Sure. Um, it was quite a journey. My wife and I were on the Diamond Princess, which was the first outbreak of COVID. We were on the cruise ship in Japan in, this is January of 2020, and uh, a passenger had left the ship after, we had a 16-day cruise. And let me let me preface this by, uh, with the shingles vaccine, I was already starting treatment at UCLA, mm-hmm. but back at that time, I was still walking and doing fine, and they did five days of uh, IVIG treatment, which is standard protocol. And then they said it'll take 30 days to tell if it's going to work or not. 
And I said, oh, great, we have a 16-day cruise planned planned in the middle of that. And they said, no problem, you'll be back in plenty of time, not realizing or knowing that it was going to be two right. months. Right, what, what you were about uh, to, to stumble on. Let me ask you a quick question. So uh, did you know at that point when you, um, when you were getting treatment at UCLA that it was specifically for a vaccine injury as it relates to Shingrix? No, because still- I suspected mm-hmm. it because right after I took the vaccine, mm-hmm. I was starting to have a reaction to it. Okay. And, and uh, I had taken an airplane flight, and you know how your feet sometimes fall yes. asleep on an airplane? My fellows fell asleep, and they never woke up. Oh, my goodness. Uh, so I knew something was, was definitely wrong. Mm-hmm. Many uh, of the homeopathic doctors, my chiropractor, many, many nurses pointed to the vaccine, mm-hmm. but the mainstream doctors poo-pooed it. Of course. They said, no way. Right. And, and poo-pooed it. And, and so I had kept it as a question mark. And it wasn't until fast forward of March when the FDA came out with the fact that, that the vaccine was creating the Guillain-Barre. And I right. got in touch with then a number of people, hundreds of people who had similar things. I realized, oh, my gosh, this is the vaccine. So, that's, sure. so that's fascinating because um, what I'm hearing is that you're getting people who are in alternative medicine um, environments really taking what you're, you're saying very seriously, trying to find a way to come up with a medical intervention and a pathway for recovery for you. But mainstream medicine is closing the door, telling you that it's all in your head. Um, and then I correlate that and connect that now to what's happening in, in California with AB2098, where um, you know we're starting to see all of these vaccine-injured individuals and they will not have access to a diagnosis, let alone medical care for their vaccine injury. And it's going to get even worse under this bill. And I know we've talked a lot about it um, on previous podcasts and other uh, formats. So for those of you that are listening, if you don't know about AB2098, I encourage you to go look it up. It basically is a bill that states that any doctor that goes against the COVID narrative in the state of California will lose their medical license. So in this particular case, uh, if they had had a conversation with Carl that uh, was in any way discussing vaccine injury, they would lose their medical license, which would prevent him from actually accessing any type of, of care. So, And um, what's even wilder to jump ahead is uh, I had treatment at UCLA here in Santa Cruz, Henry Mayo with top neurologists. Mm-hmm. The top neurologist, because I was in ground zero, the top neurologist in uh, Guillain-Barre, uh, it happens to be at Cedar Sinai here in in Los Angeles. So I ended up under his care. Mm-hmm. I had the CDC at University of Nebraska doctors. I also yeah. had because the head of the top neurologist in Cedars hooked up with the top neurologist at Johns Hopkins and Mayo Clinic. So they were all monitoring me for months <clears throat> while I went through this journey, running through millions of dollars of tests. They tested mm-hmm. me on everything. They even operated on my foot to do a nerve and a muscle biopsy. Mm-hmm. Everything in their testing came out negative. So the good news was I didn't have cancer. I didn't have any of these, right. these life-threatening diseases. But they were scratching their heads, didn't know what I had, and they decided, all of them, this wasn't just one doctor, this was, we're talking about the top group of doctors decided that since none of the traditional treatments worked, they actually made me worse Mm -hmm. over the course of the year, the next step was they were going to give me chemotherapy. Oh my goodness. And I be, I'll be damned if I was going to do chemotherapy when they didn't even know what the heck I sure. had. Well, so I, and it's interesting you said the good news is that we knew what I, what I didn't have, but it's I think equally daunting to not know, right? To have gone through this battery of tests and still not know. So, let's go back if if we could because I think I got us off course. Um, but you know, so you're going through and you decide you're going to take this this cruise because mm-hmm. It's going to be a moment of respite as you're recovering from your vaccine injury from Shingrix. So now you get on this Diamond Princess cruise. Right. And what happens? We have 15 wonderful days of the 16-day cruise. Mm -hmm. The last day, we had already packed our bags. We're sitting there on our final dinner in the dining room. And the captain announces that a passenger had gotten off a few days earlier in Hong Kong, had tested positive for corona. 
and we were going to be delayed for a day, mm -hmm. and we're going to race back to Yokohama, which was our port of destination, right. and uh, let the Japanese health officials come on board and interview everybody. So um, we spent a day uh, having the reign of the ship, and uh, the Japanese health officials took 36 hours to question everybody, test everybody, not with a COVID test, but with just with a thermometer. Mm -hmm. And they then, as we woke up the next morning, announced that we would not be leaving our cabins for two weeks, and uh, we were going to be quarantined without without leaving our cabins. That had to feel so incredibly frightening, at least from my perspective. Here we are, there's this virus, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm reflecting back on that time, right? There's a virus, there's really no um, information that's being sent out to the general public, even though I think, if, you know, we look back um, retrospectively and with the details that we now have, and we know that there was actually a lot more known about the virus than, than they were letting the general public know. So here you are, you're on a cruise ship, you're already vaccine injured, and there's little information coming out about the virus. And now they're telling you you have to stay locked in your cabin on a cruise ship for two weeks. And what made it even more uh, dramatic, Laura, was it was like a scene from the Andromeda strain. After, after 24 <laughs> hours, we docked in a private dock area in Yokohama. Wow. And against the dock must have been 100 different ambulances, uh, military personnel. Everybody was in hazmat suits. Mm -hmm. Then on one side of yeah. the dock, uh, it was roped off with hundreds of media people, TV oh cameras, goodness. satellite dishes. Mm -hmm. Media had uh, had leased boats and were circling around with uh, signs and cameras shooting at us. Two or three helicopters were coming around. And as the day progressed, ambulances were coming with sirens blaring onto the dock. And they had uh, jury-rigged a, a canopy over the door. And so what was happening is they were unloading passengers who came up positive with corona and then lifting them away from ambulance in ambulances wow. so first day there might have been 12 13 the next day right. four, t 14 15 next day 25 30 and by then the, yeah. it, the national news media was on on it mm -hmm. so we were up to account where in the end 800 of the 3600 passengers and crew on right. the diamond princess came down with corona and, and some oh 20 or 30 ended up dying from it in the end. So it was really, really a weird situation. And and of those 800 that ended up being positive, who were the ones that were from the United States? Well, there were only, there were 300, most of the, most of the ship was filled with Asian people. Mm -hmm. it, the, the Diamond Princess was anchored in, in the main area was Japan. So you had a lot of Asians on there. There were only 360 Americans on board. Okay. Uh, 60 Americans came down with the virus and were sent to hospitals, including our, our close friends were in the cabin next to us. That's what kept our marriage going was the <laughs> fact that right at the beginning uh, of the cruise, we had opened up mm -hmm. the, uh, the door between us on, we had a balcony. We we're wow. fortunate enough to have mm -hmm. a balcony. Uh, and, and, and so they, the four of us would share plenty of time together. And uh, as I said, that's what made us survive our marriage. No yeah. doubt many relationships over the course of the last uh, two and a half years have been tested. You certainly find out, I think, a lot more than than maybe uh, human nature intends to in a relationship <laughs> when you're but put every, in this circumstance. Every time we felt sorry for ourselves, though, there were uh, people, mm -hmm. anyone who's cruised know that, that the inside cabin, we had probably, I don't know, eight, 800 square yeah. feet, 600 square feet of space. Mm -hmm. In the inside cabin, you might get 350 square wow. feet of space. And we, I met a couple at one of our stops. They were in their 80s from Atlanta, and their grandson had bought them a gift of this oh. cruise. And the grandson, who was, was in his early 20s, mm -hmm. had brought a friend along. So the four of them were in an wow. inside cabin so anytime we started feeling sorry for some, and Jerry had met a military couple mm -hmm. that had two young kids Goodness. that were in inside cabins. Mm -hmm. so anytime we felt sorry for ourselves, we, we realized how fortunate we were. 
Right. No doubt that that phrase of we're all in this together. I think there's a reason, I guess, that that became kind of the catchphrase for the last two and a half years. So so now you find yourself in this virtual prison. Um, were, were you diagnosed positive with COVID? No, what happened was uh, the night of Valentine's night, our, our uh, female friend, Jerry, oh, it's also the same name as my wife, mm-hmm. she came down with a high fever. Okay. And she's the healthiest of the four of us. And, and her husband uh, is a double kidney transplant uh, survivor. Mm-hmm. So he was the one most vulnerable and, and was the reason we were tested to begin with. Mm-hmm. So, so um, she was tested and, and came out positive. And okay. it took time to get the test results back. Sure. But she was whisked away. She had one hour to leave her, leave her uh-huh. room and it was all in Japanese because it was Japanese. By then, the Japanese health officials had taken control of the whole situation. And by then, so many uh, of the hospital beds in Tokyo and Yokohama mm-hmm. and around the Tokyo suburbs were filled. They whisked her away yeah. for three and a half hours to Fukushima, which is the town that had the atomic right. uh, problem. She, From the earthquake, for three right? and a half hours, she was sent to a hospital there. With no one speaking English, thank goodness she had her her translator on her phone. Was her husband allowed to go with her? No, no. And and he there was, was no so, option. I'm assuming for her, there was no uh, question and answer session. There was no ability no. to say, you know, I don't think that this is going to work for me. I'd like to stay uh, on in my cabin, please. It was without uh, question, without ability to um, even push back. Right. This is where she was being taken. Right. And the, and so by we were by then. Uh, that was when it really hit us mm-hmm. how de- bad this was. The only the only good news was th- we were communicating with her the whole time via via text, okay. and found out that by the time she got there, she was over her symptoms. She was fine. Interesting. Although she had to spend, she ended up spending about three weeks, two weeks there, and then one week in additional okay. quarantine to get her back to the states. Okay. So now there were three of us left. And we're finally rescued by Trump. Uh, the State Department didn't want to bring us back. Mm-hmm. The um, FDA the, and, and uh, they, they, they all decided that one of them recommended that we go over to, uh, to, the, the, to Cuba, to the, to the prison over there, Guantanamo. Uh, they wanted to put you in Guantanamo. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you but can't make this up, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> So now so, we're sending COVID patients yeah. early on to Guantanamo. Yeah. Probably get waterboard tested. <laughs> right. But, I was yeah. just going to say, yeah. I've heard that the uh, the the uh, conditions over there are quite stunning. <laughs> First <laughs> so, class all the way. <laughs> exactly. So we, uh, we were told finally, this was on about day 12 after we'd been quarantined, that we would be sent back to the States and that they were bringing in two cargo 747s from the Air Force in to uh, take us away that afternoon. That afternoon turned out to be a whole night affair, uh, and we finally boarded buses uh, probably in the middle of the night, Uh and we sat on the buses for six hours with no bathrooms. People were, there were about six or seven buses, all with Americans, so there maybe were 300 of us left, and uh, people were claustrophobic. People were having panic attacks. People had COVID. People were throwing up. People were going to the bathroom on the bus. It was so, really something. So at this point, you had not tested positive for COVID, no. but yet they put you in a bus with other people that were, in fact, COVID positive. They didn't know it. We learned about this a month later. So okay. what had happened, we didn't know why we were sitting there because it was only 35 minutes to the airport. Okay. So why were we there for six hours? No one told us, no one knew. What we discovered later on, a month later, was that, that at the time, the, pro, the, the way they were testing everybody for COVID mm-hmm. was they would do the swab test, send the swabs to Tokyo right. in a lab there and back. So there would be about a 36, 48-hour lag time. Sure. And what they had discovered was about eight passengers were in the buses that tested positive for COVID, right. had entered the buses not knowing right. they had COVID. We didn't know, and they didn't know what to do. The Japanese did not allow us to come back to the, 
back in. Sure. That's when the state, that's when they were all in a fight, what mm-hmm. to do with us. Sure. That's what we learned. And finally, Trump stepped in and Pence and they, they uh, rescued us okay. and said they're coming back. And so what they did was they jury-rigged these cargo planes didn't have a ceiling or anything, a, oh a normal ceiling, so they jury-rigged some quarantine areas with this very thick plastic, and they put the eight passengers. They were two cargo planes, so we got divided in half. Right. Half were going to, which, which was us, were going to Travis Air Force Base in Sacramento, mm-hmm. and the others were going to f- fly to an Air Force Base in San Antonio. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, so we boarded the plane. We'd been up for... 15, 16, 17 hours. Thank God the plane had two bathrooms, so there was a 40-minute line to get to the bathroom, oh but we goodness. were glad to get to the bathroom right. as opposed to uh, what we had on the bus of no bathrooms. And we boarded. Uh, finally, we took off, We and I fell asleep, woke up two hours later. We had been given little pocket thermometers early on, and part of the protocol while we were in quarantine was we had to test ourselves uh, every three or four hours, okay. and then if we had a fever, we had to c- put Report a call it. in and notify them. Mm-hmm. So I had my pocket thermometer in me, put it in, and I had 103. And my wife took one look at me and wow. said, "You got it. You got COVID." Okay. And, and that had to be frightening. And so I walked up. There was uh, three only three. We never saw the pilots. There were three Air Force personnel, an Air Force doctor, and two aides all in hazmat suits, okay. and they had a little card table set up there and some box lunches for us and some thermometers and a, and a blood test, test your blood. Was the, was the Air Force doctor, um, being the only medical personnel on that aircraft, was that doctor providing medical care, or was it more of a um, uh, kind of, I don't want to say smoke and mirrors, but for lack of a better term, smoke and mirrors, so they, they have this presence of medical personnel. But right. He was monitoring us, and okay. I'm, I'm sure he was doing what he was supposed to do. And I w- he took one look at me, took my temperature, and saw that it was also 103, so he mm-hmm. threw me in the quarantine area. There already were six others in there, and and so I was stuck in quarantine. This was about two hours into our flight, and I, it, I, that was a 10-hour flight, wow. and I fell asleep. Okay. Uh, woke up as we're landing at Travis, and... Were you given any um, anything to help medically? Were you given Tylenol, Advil, anything? No, so no you had we could have a cup of water. That was it. A cup of, a cup of water, and yeah. you had 103 temperature. Right. And now you're forced to be quarantined at the back of the the airplane behind plastic curtains away from your family members. Right. Okay. Got it. Yeah. With six others. Uh, When I woke up, we landed at Travis and the Air Force doctor informed me that I wasn't getting off the plane and two others weren't getting off the plane. They didn't say why and why the rest of the ones in quarantine were getting off. Okay. And they said, three of you are flying to Omaha along, and your spouses are going with you. Well, at least they at were least they willing to let Jerry go with right. you. Okay. But our friend Mark, who was with us, whose wife was still in Fukushima, mm-hmm. uh, we asked to have Mark go with us, mm-hmm. and they wouldn't allow that. So Mark had to get off at, at, at uh, Travis, along with our luggage got off at Travis. That's another funny story if we have time. <laughs> so we, we went to Omaha with no luggage other than I had my backpacks. I had one change of clothes and a toothbrush, and that was it. My goodness. Um, And then we sat at Travis for three or four hours and then were flown to Omaha, just the six of us, Mm -hmm. and uh, three of us with COVID. The uh, guy sitting next to Jerry, uh, who was the, the husband of the wife I was sitting next to in quarantine, they had gotten married. They were in their 40s. She lived in Florida. He was Italian. They had gotten married on the ship. So this that's, was their honeymoon. That's an amazing. Yeah. It's a, that's a <laughs> that's honeymoon a movie for the records. <laughs> exactly. They were on their honeymoon, and he started coughing and sneezing. So he had COVID. Mm-hmm. So through all this, Jerry never, never, ever got COVID. Interesting. Yeah, and we, we can go into that later on. Right. I think that's a whole, a whole like hour long podcast exactly. on why that is, right. and and I think it'd be interesting to explore that with one of our doctors. 
Yeah, we had many doctors explore our mm -hmm. blood uh, over the both in Omaha and then mm -hmm. later on here. Providence Health Services has their okay. main wow. lab in in Omaha in mm -hmm. uh, Oregon in Portland, and they took her blood and they took my blood. Late, this is after the whole ordeal. They took my blood and I was through the roof with antibodies. Okay. She had no antibodies, but. They put her T cells against COVID, and within two seconds, it killed the COVID virus. Interesting. So they flew every coronavirus known to man wow. in from around the world, which at that time was about 32. They later on did the same thing with Delta and mm -hmm. Omicron, and against every virus, her blood killed the. So the you're instantly. married to a superhuman. Yeah. Okay. And they don't know why, or as they say, they they decided to call her an enigma. So okay. That's what All right. We'll call her an, an enigma. enigma. She probably likes superhero, but yeah. you know, we'll go with either. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so okay. So, so we now land you... in Omaha. I they put me on a stretcher, even though I could walk at that time. Mm -hmm. uh, they put me on a stretcher, carried me down the stairs, and there was a motorcade. Every division of of police were there, right. state, city, federal, the CDC, we didn't know, had their own secret service. Mm -hmm. They were there. Interesting. I had a motorcade bigger than the president's or the pope's motorcade right. to Omaha. The rest of the passengers, the other five, were put in a, in a van. I was put in an ambulance, uh, separated from them, and... Were you were you driven to from Sacramento to Omaha, or were no, you put we on were another plane? No, we plane? never left the no, we never left the plane. Okay, got we were it. still stuck on the plane. So All right. we were on that plane for I don't know twenty hours or so. My goodness! Except our luggage, our luggage right. ended up in Sacramento, but okay. we didn't. <laughs> Did so we were in Omaha. I was what I later learned was the five passengers were put in a dormitory that was sealed, a sealed dormitory, kind of mm -hmm. like a halfway, it, not not full care hospital, but half care and everything locked and sealed. Okay. Jerry was in a different wing than the other five of that hospital because she didn't have coronavirus. Mm -hmm. They did. I was sent to the about three blocks away. What had happened was, do you remember the anthrax scare? I do. Right yes. after 9-11? I do very much. Well, the government was caught with their pants down with mm -hmm. the anthrax scare. Mm -hmm. They had no biocontainment unit anywhere in the country. Okay. They quickly built a main one in Omaha, thinking it's the center of the country. Mm -hmm. The University of Nebraska is there. Nebraska Med is there, right. embedded into it. <laughs> so the CDC literally spent multi, multi-millions of dollars building this facility. Mm -hmm. They built satellite ones also in Atlanta and Manhattan and never finished in time because anthrax came and went very quickly. Right. But they had, so for 15 years, they had this gorgeous facility that looked like, if you've seen movies, uh, space movies of NASA with central wow. control, command control. That's what this was like. Well, it probably felt almost very ominous as well. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. but, uh, uh, I had been, so, so what the, the uh, room I was in, the biocontainment room, mm -hmm. was used once before. So 15 years had gone by and Ebola hit. And they put an Ebola patient in there. Oh my goodness. And then six more years went by, and I was patient number two in there, the first with corona in that unit. That is I, not a title that, that you want. No. <laughs> and I, I had been, uh, they, they had pulled me up in an ambulance to the basement of the building, the loading dock. Mm -hmm. They took me through these back rooms and downstairs basement, similar to, it was similar, and, and there was a guard at every door. It was similar to, if, if you've ever seen the old, you're too young to remember the old Get Smart TV show. Oh, I remember that. But if you remember <laughs> the beginning of the Get yes. Smart TV show where he always walks through, mm -hmm. and always, that's what I felt like. I oh was Don gosh. Adams going in on a stretcher in, in through all these holes, through a side elevator, up and then put in this mm -hmm. biocontainment room that was like a bubble. Mm -hmm. It was about 15 by 15, uh, two beds in there. I was in the only bed. Monitors were hooked up with to me. There were uh, two TV cameras. I was in a bubble. Every, the doors had double sealed. Everything was double sealed, and no one walked right. in there without a hazmat suit on. The I'm full sure. hazmat suit with the air going, so it was like they were moon landing people. My goodness. They would put on three layers of of gloves. They would then take duct tape between the gloves and the uniform. It was, it was really surreal. And the people that were in these, you know, this, this uniform with all this, you know, the, 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 I, 
the equipment and the air going and the hazmat, um, how were they treating you? How were they responding to you? Well, they were great, but okay. I had a, a, a doctor who turned out to be the head of the CDC and, and one of the heroes in the coronavirus mm. was seeing me. He was head of the whole CDC out there in Nebraska. Okay. And then the nurses, and then I got handed off to another doctor later on. Mm-hmm. The first day a nurse stayed in with me, they could only last about three hours in that suit. Sure. And then they would have to walk and take right. it off. So they do it in shifts. Right. But but uh, after the first day, and they had two TV cameras on me the whole time, and there were TV screens so I could talk to whoever My was goodness. on the other end whenever I wanted to but but yeah so no one entered that room without a full set of hazmat suits and how were you feeling um at this time I know that had to be um a very anxiety inducing experience yeah I you know by then I knew that that our friend Jerry had had basically had the flu symptoms, mm-hmm. was fine 24 hours later. By the time I was put into into that, my fever had broken. I was okay. fine. I would have been to work the next day. I had a little. The next day, I, I had a dry cough, mm-hmm. and I found that when I walked back then, I could still walk. Mm-hmm. If I walked and talked on the phone at the same time, I would lose my breath and have oh, to sit down. Okay. And that stayed with me along with the cough for many months. Mm-hmm. But but my fever broke. I had a mild fever the next day. Mm-hmm. I would have been to work 24 hours later. That's how I felt. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So much like most of the reporting that we got, uh, that, we're now, that we now know, I should say, it was fairly, um, it was a fairly light flu type symptom for you. We know obviously there were others uh, that had much more dire outcomes and we've covered it in, in probably many, many podcasts as well as other uh, formats about why we think that they had more dire outcomes. So so the good news is you're at least not feeling like uh, you're in a state where you could potentially escalate and have to have more, um, more medical intervention, but now it's a, a game of waiting, right? It was waiting, but what was a little worse for me was back on the Diamond Princess when I was in quarantine, my, my numbness, the numbness of my feet and hands were beginning to creep. Okay. Nothing to do with COVID. Sure. This was going back to the Shingrix vaccine. talking to my UCLA neurologist, they decided better wait till you get back to the States than get treated in mm-hmm. Japan. So since it wasn't life-threatening. Mm-hmm. So I waited, and when I got into the quarantine area... It was continuing to get worse, but the doctors in quarantine decided, no, we're not going to deal with the with the neuro- neuropathy. Mm-hmm. We're going to deal with COVID only. So I dealt with the COVID. Mm-hmm. They wouldn't even give me vitamin C. We were reading, by then, we were reading all the protocols that were supposed to be good for COVID right. and supposed to be good for... for sure. We were pleading with them to even give me a vitamin C pill. And they so what were that. they giving you if they weren't, if they were denying Gatorade. You? That was every, all they were giving you. That was it. It was Gatorade, and it was the uh, every I could have my choice of any brand of Gatorade. Which, if you look at the uh, ingredients of Gatorade, they're just it's filled with sugar. Right. Interestingly enough, I read somewhere recently that Gatorade is banned in certain countries. <laughs> well, I would ban it. It's banned at our house now. <laughs> I right. won't have another. Oh, Gatorade I'm sure in my after life. your experience. Yeah. yeah. So, so they were not giving you any type of uh, prophylactic care. None. At all, so you weren't getting anything to for maybe pain or for um, for fever. You said your fever had broken, so you're not right. getting any Tylenol, no no ibuprofen. You're not getting um, any type of vitamins or supplement support. No vitamins. You're, you're strictly getting. You're living off of Gatorade at this point. I'm living off Gatorade, and they were feeding me well. So okay, I had plenty of food. Had Gatorade. And and that was it. They would not, but even asking for supplements, they wouldn't give me. And they would that. say no. They okay. would say no. Wow, wow. They were, um, I was the guinea pig, so they were doing all kinds of tests mm-hmm. at the time. And I had agreed to sign up for a clinical study mm-hmm. at that time because we wanted answers. Sure. All of us wanted to help. And, and so uh, the protocol back then, the normal protocol back then for testing was they would stick a swab deep up your nose for 30 seconds, mm-hmm. all the way to your brain, deep mm-hmm. down your throat, <laughs> so you'd be gagging right. for 30 seconds, mm-hmm. and, and uh, that would be the, the, 
the test, right. the standard test. We were being tested every 48 hours with that. Oh I signed up for the clinical study, so taking one for the team, <laughs> I got 30 seconds under each eyelid. Oh my and goodness. then 30 seconds up my rear end. Oh my gosh. But luckily, I made it. You really were a guinea pig. I was taking it for the team. But one, one of the, uh, I, I was speaking at, at the Rotary Club about two months ago, and a wise guy said, Well, I hope they weren't using the same swab. Right. Well, and I think that <laughs> takes it up to a whole new level when we say taking it for the team. Uh, so at this point, did you have any idea what was happening on the outside? So obviously you're here in this in this environment that feels very sterile. Uh, you're being treated like you, you know like an alien, and you're you're only being given Gatorade. What information do you have coming into you at this point? Well, I was ground zero, so it was the exact opposite. I was mm-hmm. giving out more information. I could have okay. done. I was doing. I limited it to five or six interviews a day, okay. but I could have been doing interviews nonstop. And we're talking about everybody, so from 60 Minutes and Fox, CNN, MSNBC, mm-hmm. uh, People Magazine, GQ. Who would have ever thought I would be a featured article in GQ? Uh, go figure. Hey, but, I mean, <laughs> after what you were put through, I think you qualify. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, so I was... Th- constantly mm-hmm. on the media and so was and and so was Jerry mm-hmm. so we were getting cycled through all the time the what Jerry had raised a point with the CDC about 3 or 4 days into the ordeal okay. that that we were kind of in a bubble and the CDC made the intelligent decision to have um, group discussions meet a group meeting every day Okay. So a group meeting via phone. So right, right. In virtual, we were not allowed to leave our rooms. But the other pass by then there were other passengers because a day later, about six or seven or eight from Texas came okay. off the Diamond Princess. So there were about six. I think there were sixteen of us mm-hmm. in the end, twenty four hours later, and in, in Omaha, and and so the sixteen of us every day at three o'clock would get on the phone and get, have a chance to talk to the head of the CDC, okay. get the information there, head of the medical personnel in that area, head of facilities mm-hmm. in that area, and then also they provided a psychologist. So oh. we got to, um, because of the, all the isolation sure. and everything, and the fear, sure. and just having that communication with everybody in the similar boat, I think helped all of us a lot. So in these meetings, you were communicating to the leadership at the CDC, what, your symptoms, your the recovery rates, what, what information were you communicating to them? Well, they were already taking all that, so I think it was more of our basic needs, of mm-hmm. asking for vitamin C, they wouldn't, which they wouldn't give. Right. Uh, did they give you a reason why they wouldn't give that? Their decision was uh, with COVID, they were not going to give out anything at that point in, in terms of any medication. Uh, what we later learned with Jerry, she had a toothache later on, and finally they let a dentist in with full gear to, to help her out. Right. And the dentist wanted to give her Tylenol at that time. And the head of the CDC said, "No, you can't do that." Right. And we learned that, that, yeah, we learned that ibuprofen, anything ibuprofen based, was like throwing fire onto it. From all the research they had decided, so right. they gave her Advil, okay. with it, which is a whole different technology on that. Yeah, and I think it, it's interesting, kind of, to see the the chronology and the evolution of really learning more about the virus from where it was back in in February, right when this first started and in March we start getting locked down to today the the information that we now know and I think the information that we now know about COVID and its treatments and the dangers of the vaccines is in large part due to some really incredibly heroic doctors that did not um, simply go along with the COVID narrative and accept the memos from from the you know acronyms for the federal government, the NIH, the, mm-hmm. the CDC, um, and others. And so now, I think thanks to them, we now know that high doses of vitamin C, vitamin D, black seed oil, um, ivermectin, hydroxychloroquine, these early effective treatments were are, were so vital to saving, I, I think, many, many lives. And conversely, the fact that these were denied um, after 
you know, again, I don't know that this was happening in, in February, but certainly March, April, May, June timeframe, uh, people were becoming very aware of the fact that these early effective treatments were available and the fact that, that people were denied access to it, I think, led to the death of thousands, if not more, Absolutely. people across the globe. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. you, you are so right. And back then, if we rewind the tape, when I was first put in isolation, they were certain that COVID stayed on surfaces, right. didn't travel in the air. Right. They immediately put a air monitor in my biocontainment unit. They did. And then every yeah. day they came in and swabbed anything I touched. So yeah. the toilet seat, mm -hmm. my iPhone, my computer, the remote control on the TV, under my bed, right. over my bed. So, And I'm sure they did that with others at the same time. And that's that information allowed them to realize it traveled in the air and not right. on surfaces. Exactly. Yeah. I was just going to say, we now know that, that this whole, you know, I remember even, I even fell, um, kind of pray to that that logic as well for the first I would say week where you're wiping down your groceries and I and I remember I've said in, in past interviews because I have a heart condition I think the first couple of weeks I would go out to if we had to go to the store I would look like I was going to Chernobyl right we had these big right. these big masks on that had filters in them we now know, obviously, that that, that um, was not necessary and didn't prevent. Actually, the CDC knew this early, early on. They told us right from the start multiple times, not just once and from multiple people, masks don't work, don't use masks. Mm -hmm. And they said that, that th there were two reasons they gave not to wear masks. Mm -hmm. One is all studies showed that the spores of the coronavirus were smaller than mm -hmm. the holes in the mask. Right. And so that was useless and that your mask then collected saliva and other germs that were in there that caused more harm. But the other interesting thing is they discovered that in all their studies that non-medical personnel, mm -hmm. folks like me, mm -hmm. ended up touching their face much more often with the mask on than with it not having a mask. That's and correct. why they said only medical personnel should wear masks. And it wasn't until the mask became politicized right. that the whole the whole narrative switched. Sure. And I think at this point we there's so much data out there that shows that masks are not only ineffective, but actually in, in some circumstances, much like you were alluding to, if you're touching your face um, or if you're wearing it for prolonged periods of time, uh, that it can actually have the counter impact on um, on this virus and really on the health, the overall health of someone. Absolutely. Uh, so, okay, so you're now starting to feel better. You're still in the in this biocontainment bio unit. At what point do you get to be released? How does that? Well, work? It took, I I was there for a month, but I was mm -hmm. in the biocontainment unit for ten days. Okay, and then they and I was feeling great, uh, other than running out of breath. So finally they moved me over to the dorm area okay. and kept me in isolation there. The rule was there we had to go through three days of negative testing on all three, wow. our no nostrils. I don't know if my butt my counted. But I was just going to say, what about your other orifices? Yeah. <laughs> I don't, I'm not sure if, they, if that counted, but but uh, three days of negative tests, and you can only get a test every 48 hours. Mm -hmm. So so I lingered on with mm -hmm. the dead dead cells in my nose and right. tested positive for many, many weeks on oh, that. Oh, goodness. So a funny, funny story in the middle of all this, mm -hmm. uh, after I'd already been switched over out of buying containment, it was, it was the day that Pence was named head of the task force. And, and Vice President Pence. Okay. And about an hour and a half after he's named, and we're watching this on TV, about an hour and a half later, he calls me on my cell. <laughs> and I had been getting calls from all around the world every right. five minutes by then, and I was on the phone with my son, so I didn't take his call. <laughs> and uh, two minutes later, he calls my wife on her cell. She takes the call. Of course. And he had started his career in radio. Did you know that? I did not know that, no. He, he was a conservative talk show host in Indianapolis. Interesting. And that's how he got into politics. Okay. So he and Jerry hit it off. They uh -huh. had about a 15-minute conversation. Okay. Had a, a relationship via phone and texting for many, many months mm -hmm. during that whole time, which was feeding information back mm -hmm. and forth. Uh, he was helping us out because we were getting death threats from the time we were on the, the Diamond Princess. Hold on. You were getting death threats from oh, who? Yeah. We were 
I'll, I'll backtrack. When we travel, we don't publicize that we leave because mm -hmm. we're high profile here in Santa Clarita. Right. The big fish in the small pond. Mm -hmm. We don't publicize that. And so we didn't publicize it. We don't post on social media when we mm -hmm. travel. It's only after our trips that we'll travel. Right. Day two of quarantine on the Diamond Princess, mm -hmm. there was an, another American realtor from St. George, Utah, uh -huh. who was posting lies about what was taking place with Princess, saying, oh. that, saying that they were trapped like in jail, that they weren't getting fed, they weren't getting... Mm -hmm. They were charging for all food and alcohol. Mm -hmm. Not all of it was a lie. Okay. It was a total lie. And we felt we that we should start telling the truth, not just us, but also Mark and Jerry, uh, who were with us, our friends. Right, that's so, important. Yeah. So all of us got on social media, and, and of course, we had the platform of the radio station, so I started blogging on what was really happening on the radio station, and then the rest of the media picked up and it became a snowball effect okay. from that. <clears throat> and and so we were we were sharing what was going on with us on a day-to-day -day basis. And people didn't like that? That blog... Well, 99% of the people were great with it and very supportive, right. and, mm -hmm. and the, you can go on our blog on hometownstation.com and still see the old things. That it is really a historical look going back mm -hmm. but there was that one percent that were out there that were that didn't want us to come back to the states mm. and then when we got back to the states they didn't want us to come out of out of hibernation in omaha and they were very graphic and very one one wanted to see my grandkids and they named our grandkids and our son who was at University of Michigan at the time so they pinpointed that oh they wanted goodness. to see me them them watch me die with my in my juices and all that oh my goodness the CDC unbeknownst to us at the time the wow. CDC has their own version of the secret service mm, interesting yeah it's not <laughs> not the secret service but it's their own police force sure sure and and they were they were around in Omaha. They were around, of course, I would imagine, in other places. Mm -hmm. So they stepped in, and then Pence stepped in as well okay. and and secured our situation to make sure that we weren't... So the FBI got involved with it right. to make sure that, that these threats That's were shocking. quelched. That is shocking. And the other, the other challenge we had is they had taken away our passports right when we left the Diamond Princess and then not given it back again. And we were, we were already on the no-fly list right. because of the COVID. Sure. So we feared what it would be like coming back to, to leaving Omaha and coming back to the States. So Vice President Pence mm -hmm. actually pulled some strings, and Jerry left about two weeks before I did, okay. pulled some strings and had the uh, Secret Service of the CDC escort her. Okay. And then once she landed in Los Angeles, Catherine Barger, our supervisor, mm -hmm. uh, saw to it, and, and our supervisor saw to it that we were she was well protected good. coming in. That's good. But to show how crazy it was, <sighs> we were she was gone six weeks, and we had a, a kid watching the house and uh -huh. our dogs during that entire time who was right. a real trooper who worked part-time for us and worked for a military installation here mm -hmm. in Valencia. Mm -hmm. He came the next morning after Jerry arrived and gave her back the house keys. Mm -hmm. Didn't even step to the house in the house. And mind you, Jerry never had COVID. Right. She was she was superwoman. She's she yeah, she's superhuman. She's right. the only immune person in the world. He She's got the one you to, want to be around. Right. <laughs> he got to work, and the uh, owner met him right at the door and said, you're fired. You're kidding. Nope. You're That's kidding. That's how crazy it was. Wow. Jerry had uh, people who had done uh, therapy on her for 15, 16 years, who had done uh, workouts for her, her workout coaches. They refused to see her. Isn't that amazing, the human yeah. psychology behind all of this um, and how obviously we, we know that the media propagated a lot of what, what you see in terms of the, the fear porn and, and what's happening nowadays. Absolutely. Uh, we're seeing it now with the next next uh, iteration, which is now monkeypox, and we don't even have time to go into that on this right. podcast. That's going to be a whole separate podcast. But um, 
it's amazing to me the human psychology behind this. And I remember very early on thinking, like within the first week of lockdowns, thinking the way that this is being um, portrayed in the media and the way that people are, are reacting in such a hysterical um, response is I, I would expect to open my front door and see bodies all over the streets. And of course that wasn't happening. Sadly, we know that there are millions of people um, that have died around the world. We now know that. But we also know that those people died because they were denied access to effective care that would have saved their life. Never before have we seen in human history, when you see a pandemic, and it doesn't matter if it's smallpox or Ebola or any other uh, commu highly communicable disease that you can think of, did we say to the human population, not only don't seek care for it, but we want you to shelter in place in your home, in your communities, to the point that you should not seek medical care until you're in such an advanced state of, of decline that you have to be rushed to the hospital, you have to be put on a ventilator, you have to be given experimental drugs. Um, and I say experimental because remdesivir, they, they knew early on, um, they knew from, from other um, uses of remdesivir that this happens to be a drug with tremendously negative side effects. So never before in human history have we seen um, a response to a communicable disease the way that we did with COVID. And it was that response that led to the deaths that we've seen thus far. And we know that the, the ventilators are basically a, a curse of death. Sure. Putting people on there. But, but hospitals got $40,000 for every person they put on a ventilator. Right. Hospitals so. continue to be financially incentivized uh, for every patient that they put in some form of a COVID protocol. Uh, to this day, they continue to be incentivized. So um, where, where to, you know, you get released, you guys come home, um, unfortunately you had to go through protective actions in order to even reintegrate into society. I hope that that person who made that threat um, ended up with some type of criminal ramification. Although, um, given what's happening in the country uh, and with the prosecutors nowadays, I'm not even sure that that would be possible. But I certainly hope that it led to some type of criminal prosecution for the individual that did that. Uh, where? Tell me what's going on in your life right now. So you've recovered from COVID and you recovered very early on. Um, right. tell, tell me what's happening in your life right now. So now I'm still struggling with this neuropathy. Mm -hmm. I'm getting healthier and healthier with each passing right. month. And to be clear, um, the neuropathy is from the Shingrix vaccine, Shingrix not vaccine. from COVID. Absolutely. Shingrix vaccine, okay. not from COVID. But it's very, I've talked to many uh, COVID vaccine victims, mm -hmm. and they're almost identical to the types of lingering. Um, problems that they're having right. and experiencing. So I'm going through that. I'm doing probably half time on therapy uh, professionally. I'm doing my own therapy with it. My right. wife has been uh, just phenomenal right. with everything. She's the one who's been running the radio station. Yeah. We've owned this radio station for 32 years, mm -hmm. and uh, it's been a team all up until this journey. Yeah. And now she's had the, the whole burden on her. But right. But other than that, I'm just happy to be around. Well, I can't thank you enough for coming on the podcast and telling your story. I think it's a story that every American should hear for so many reasons. I think people need to understand um, early on what happened. Um, I think the, there are moments where you were shown at, at least an attempt at extreme um, care and I think that there are certainly moments where there it was there was not care that was exercised, um, and you were treated probably much um, like a, like an object being shuffled through a system. Uh, obviously, sending you to Guantanamo would not have been, I think, the best <laughs> option, and and that just shows really the desperation in those early moments. But I think your story is so vital for people to understand very early on what was happening behind closed doors as this country was trying to navigate the best um, pathway for, for caring for the citizens uh, that for in a, a time when we had what we thought would be um, a, a, 
a communicable disease that resulted in a very, very, very high mortality rate. And we now know that the mortality rate across all demographics is incredibly low, unless you are someone that is um, over the age of 75 that has significant comorbidities, multiple comorbidities, and is denied access to early interventive care. You know, uh, short of that, this is actually a fairly innocuous virus on the human population. You see much higher death rates in, in communicable diseases that we have not had this type of a reaction to as a human population, as a world community. So thank you so much for being here. Thank you for telling your story. Uh, I know it's probably very difficult for you. So... Well, thank you so much, Laura, for, for also thank the Unity Project and for everything you guys are, are doing. I want to just add one quick thing. is One of, one of I know, your heroes and part of the Unity yeah. Project is Dr. Paul Alexander. Yes. And uh, I watched a video just the other day when he was testifying in front of the Canadian mm -hmm. uh, uh, polit politicians. And he shared some research showing now that they changed the definition of vaccinated versus unvaccinated to having to have the booster and two weeks go by before that. So everyone who was hospitalized in that two-week window with COVID, even though they had been vaccinated, mm -hmm. were pushed into the category of unvaccinated, which is why you're seeing numbers out there that are that are skewed mm -hmm. when in reality the ones in hospitals right now other than those with with really uh, challenging conditions otherwise are the ones who are vaccinated that's correct yeah just so just to reiterate that point because it's a really important one uh, we are now seeing that upwards of 94 to 98% of mortality current date from covid-19 is in multiple vac multiply vaccinated I'm making up words uh, <laughs> individuals that have had multiple vaccines um, and and to your point you know maybe two weeks ago we would have said fully vaccinated now we have to clarify and say individuals that have had multiple vaccines because they continue to have this sliding scale in terms of what the definition of, of, of vaccinated and fully vaccinated is. And they're doing that obviously by design. They're doing that intentionally um, because what we know is, and, and we've known this for a long time, even if you're vaccinated, you can still acquire and transmit the virus. So by the nature of that statement alone, you have to then go back and rework the definition of what vaccinated is. And they will continue to do this because we will continue to see people that uh, engage in getting more and more vaccines, they're exposing themselves to higher and higher risk of not only dire outcomes for COVID, but now we're getting a tremendous amount of data coming out of insurance actuaries um, and other sources. There's been tremendous amount of peer-reviewed studies coming out of uh, Israel and coming out of UK and other uh, countries that all cause mortality is up. So the more you get vaccinated, the more likely it is that you're compromising your immune system and you're going to be subjected to a whole host of unfortunate and unpleasant um, things that can happen to the human population. And then I want to add one final thing, and this might be a, a cap for the, this entire interview, and that is uh, on January 17th of this coming year, 2023, Jerry, my wife Jerry, and our, my friends Mark and Jerry, are we're all going to take a cruise to the Panama Canal, and it will have been on the exact third anniversary of our departure on the Diamond Princess. Oh my goodness. Well, so talk about resilience. Let's, yes, I am astonished by your strength. I am humbled by it. I have, ever since I, I met you, it's been, um, I've just been, I feel like honored to know your story, know you as a person, know, see your strength, watch the strength that your wife has. And um, I'm just, I'm really blessed and fortunate to know you. So hopefully you guys will be able to go on that cruise, given the fact that California has now declared another state of emergency for monkeypox. Right. So um, hopefully that hopefully you'll be able to to engage uh, in, in a safe journey on that cruise. But again, I'm so grateful. I'm so impressed by the the human being that you are. And for for anyone who wants to hear a little bit more, I think about your story and just follow what you're doing. I know. Um, can they go to KHTS? Right. Yeah, they can go right to hometownstation.com okay. and, and, or they can Google my name and coronavirus and 
all of our journal will pop up there and our team has put together some really creative videos that have really covered our journey through all this. But I thank you for allowing me to share this. Absolutely. And for anyone who wants to know more about uh, Dr. Paul Alexander, he's our chief medical, excuse me, our chief scientific officer. And we have a lot of information on our website. So thank you so much for listening to this podcast today. It's been an absolute pleasure. From all of us at the Unity Project, thank you for listening to today's podcast. We hope to continue producing content that amplifies voices, strategies, and resources. Please keep in mind that the Unity Project is a 501c3 nonprofit organization that relies on the contributions of our generous supporters to fuel the work we do in this movement. If you value our efforts, please consider making a tax-deductible contribution today by visiting our website at www.unityproject.com and clicking the donate button. We very much appreciate your continued support and confidence, without which our work wouldn't be possible. 